This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Welcome to Construction Law Today. This is a brand new project of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Over the course of our next several podcasts, I'll be interviewing a number of prominent practitioners in the area of construction law. We welcome your comments and questions about the podcast. Please let us know if you like it, if you find it useful, or any other thoughts you have on how we can improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. We are an important and timely topic today, a discussion of some of the early effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on contractors performing work for the federal government. As many of our now 4,000 plus listeners know, our podcast episodes are typically not tied to a particular date. We cover topics that we hope will have relevance over a long period of time and that the concepts that we discuss have broad application, not tied to a particular time. But now, June 2020 presents a new environment. The pandemic has created a host of new issues for federal contractors. Our guest, Shiva Hemandinia, a partner at Nichols Liu LLP in Washington, D.C., practices in this field on behalf of federal contractors. We welcome her to the podcast and look forward to talking to her today. Shiva, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Buzz. It's an honor to join you today. Let's begin, Shiva. Tell us a little bit about your law practice. Yeah, so I represent federal construction contractors. A lot of my client base are international construction contractors performing projects overseas. And it's a really interesting area as construction happens all over the world. It's an important area for contractors to be building U.S. soft power, and it's all about the mission of building excellence in design and construction standards. Tell me a little about your practice setting. Where do you work, and let us know a little about your law firm. Yeah, so I work in Washington, D.C., and I joined a government contracts boutique practice. Our team is multidisciplinary. We've got accountants, investigators, and attorneys that all work together in collaboration to ensure that our clients' needs are being met in spending resources in the most efficient manner. What drew you to the practice of government contracts? Well, I've always been interested in government and how our system works, checks and balances, and so on and so forth. Um, I went to the University of Virginia and majored in foreign affairs there, and um, procurement law and lawyers on both ends, both agency attorneys for the government and those in private practice, I think, play a really important role in ensuring that our system is one that is fair. And it's, you know, there are a lot of regulations, there's a lot of red tape, but it really just boils down to how do we use our taxpayers' hard-earned money in the way that makes the most sense. Well, that's a, that's a lofty goal, but how do we accomplish it? I think the way that we accomplish it is um, ensuring that we have full and open competition for government opportunities. 
And another way that we do this is through the small business regulations. Um, These regulations ensure or try to aim to make sure that small businesses are also getting a fair shot at these opportunities, the government awards. Shiva, let's turn to the COVID-19 pandemic issue and generally how it's affected your world of government contracting. Tell us about that. Well, COVID-19 has really created an unprecedented environment for construction companies. Many projects are on pause or restricted to stem the spread of this disease. Uh, As a result, there are really critical shortages of labor and materials. You may have read this, but a recent AGC survey estimates that nearly 70% of construction jobs are experiencing some form of delay or cancellation due to this pandemic. Well, let me ask you then particularly about government work. What's the general status of that area of construction? Well, the government work is impacted the same as some of these other jobs in in the private construction industry. And everyone is experiencing these impacts of higher costs to perform and complete projects in an efficient manner. Now, one of the things that you and I were talking about before we went on the air today, some recent case law that's developed, and what I think about in particular with these cases, what makes it so interesting is that they involve a different pandemic. These are cases that began, and in particular, we're going to talk about one that began at the height of the Ebola pandemic several years ago. It's a case called the Pernix Circa Joint Venture. Tell us a little bit about that case. Yes, this decision came out in April of 2020, and it's very timely and relatable to current events. The Civilian Board of Contract Appeals uh, issued this opinion, and as you said, the case deals directly with the outbreak of Ebola. Ebola was devastating to West Africa. The disease started in the early spring of 2014, and this project was starting to experience the impacts of uh, Ebola by the late summer of 2014. To back up a little bit about the project, the owner of the project was the Department of State, and they made this award for $10.8 million. It was firm fixed-priced construction contract, and the project was to construct a rainwater capture and storage system for the embassy compound. They needed this to deal with the limited availability of drinking water. And um, as this outbreak was spreading uh, in the spring and into the summer, the project owner was getting understandably concerned and the contractor was also getting concerned about the disease. So let me ask you a little bit, and I apologize for interrupting, but let me, let me ask you a little bit about what starts to go wrong with this relatively, seems fairly simple, and uh, not a large dollar project. Ebola. Ebola starts happening in the spring of 2014 and starts spreading from the Republic of Guinea in West Africa to where the project was located in Freetown, Sierra Leone. In August, the World Health Organization declared an outbreak and airlines started suspending flights to the region. As so many of us represent contractors, I want to know what does a contractor do or 
in this particular case, what did this contractor do? Well, the contractor was understandably very concerned about the outbreak. And they went to the project owner and asked them what they should do. And they did this on several occasions. As the threat was becoming more imminent, they were getting more concerned and asking the project owner for some guidance. The response to the contractor was consistent. And it was that we will not be issuing any direction at this time. So the contracting officer is uh, sitting back in his or her chair, presumably in Washington, D.C., and saying, I don't see any official guidance given to me. So you, contractor, you make your best decision. That's exactly what happened. There was never a stop work order. There was never a suspension of work order or any other direction from the contracting officer. The response was consistent that the embassy was still open. Its staff were on site and were not ordered to leave and left it to the contractor to decide what to do. So let me, let me bring that forward a little bit to the COVID-19 situation. Shiva, in your practice, are you seeing similar kinds of behavior by federal government contracting officers? It really varies and depends on the agency. What we're hoping is for a spirit of collaboration. What's most important is keeping the lines of communication open. In the sense of COVID-19, I have seen more direction and communication from contracting officers, such as suspensions of work, stop work orders, and a different situation than the one that was presented to this contractor on this project. Well, let's go back to our friend in Sierra Leone. What happened? Well, because the contracting officer essentially left it to the contractor to decide on their own accord, whether or not they would suspend or stop the work. The contractor did what it felt best for the safety and security of its personnel and demobilized the job, evacuated its personnel, its U.S. personnel, bringing them back home so that they could remain safe. And as a result, the project experienced about 195 days of delay. Had the contractor documented the the losses that he suffered fairly well? I believe that they did. Um, The main issue in this case was that the order didn't come from the government. And when we go back and we evaluate the FAR clause at issue, no damages for delay FAR clause for force majeure events such as pandemic or epidemic provides for only time, not compensation. So let's, let's uh, find out what happens. So the contractor brings a claim. Um, where do they bring the claim? The claim has to be brought to the contracting officer. The contracting officer is the only authorized government personnel that can review or consider claims. What happened? They denied the claim. Eventually, the contracting officer did agree that uh, the project should have 195 days uh, extended to its substantial completion date. However, because of their position that no government direction was ever issued to the contractor and the contractor essentially unilaterally decided to shut down this job for the safety and protection of its personnel, the contracting officer denied the claim on that basis. Was there an appeal? There was. 
The case was appealed to the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals. Well, let's not keep our listeners in suspense. What happened? The owner filed a motion for summary judgment and prevailed on that motion. The board essentially agreed with the contracting officer that pandemics such as epidemics or quarantine fall under the force majeure clause of the FAR. And that FAR clause is 52.249-14. And that clause uh, was interpreted to provide only for extensions of time and not compensation. On the issue of the additional costs of implementing safety measures, the demobilization costs, and then remobilization costs, the board also agreed with the contracting officer that these costs were not reimbursable because the pandemic was neither the fault of the government and it also wasn't the fault or foreseeable for the contractor. But in such an event, because the contracting officer never issued any order and left it up to the contractor to decide what it wanted to do, There was no government action or inaction on which a claim for compensation could be based. Would you tell our listeners how they would get a copy of that case? You can go on to the CBCA's website and all of their decisions are published. It seems from an outsider's perspective to be a very harsh decision. What do you think and what have we learned from it? I think that what we've learned most importantly is keeping the lines of communication with the contracting officer open. In all of these cases, it's always best to try to avoid litigation. Litigation outcomes can be very unpredictable. The claim is also very important. One issue in this case was the denial of the contractor's constructive suspension of work claim. So to explain that, a suspension of work order can come in a written form, but a constructive suspension of work is essentially actions that lead to that same outcome. So had the contractor described this claim within its request for contracting officer's final decision, they could have possibly had the board consider that claim. However, because those operative facts were not presented in the contractor's request for final decision, the board held that it did not have jurisdiction to consider those constructive suspension of work claims. We'll be back with more podcasts in just a moment. We're back with Construction Law Today. Our guest is Shiva Hamandinia, who's a partner at Nichols Liu in Washington, D.C. She is a government contracting lawyer. We began our discussion earlier, uh, Shiva, with matters relating to um, a case that arose in the Ebola pandemic. And one of the things that I took from your discussion there was that communication with the contracting officer 
is going to be the key to the situation uh, for the contractor as these problems arise. To summarize, I sort of get the sense that it's better for the contractor to ask for permission rather than forgiveness later. But there's another case that you mentioned, and this is the case of Valerie Lewis Janitorial versus the Department of Veteran Affairs. Let's move to that case. Tell us what happened there. Yes. So this is a case that also was coming out of the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals and is a recent opinion, just a month old. And in this case, there was an opposite outcome. Uh, The facts are a little different. This outbreak concerns uh, C. diff, and it occurred at the VA's Northern California Healthcare System facility. This was a small project. The VA awarded Valerie Lewis a $5.1 million contract to perform janitorial and maintenance services. Now, before we get into the facts, you use the term um, I'd like you to explain, C. diff. What kind of illness is that? Correct. Uh, C. diff stands for Clostridium difficile, and it is a highly contagious disease um, that's spread by small spores. And due to this outbreak, there were some additional cleaning measures that had to be implemented by the contractor. So how did the contractor um, deal with this problem? Clear and open communication with the contracting officer. Unlike the Pernix case, in this case, the contractor requested some direction on what it should do, and the contracting officer provided clear directions on how the contractor should implement new cleaning processes to disinfect the outbreak. Well, let me ask you about that. Is that just a question of a better, more responsive contracting officer, or is it something that the contractor did? I think in this instance, it's probably the situation and the contract provisions. So in this situation, the contractor was ordered, directed, clearly, to perform a two-step disinfecting process that involved bleach and other additional materials that were a lot more expensive than what it had anticipated. Did the contractor bring a claim? They did. In the negotiation process, that's called the request for equitable adjustment stage, this particular contractor had gotten a lot further in its negotiations with the government. The government in this instance had actually issued a modification to the contract to incorporate as an amendment to the contract terms these additional processes that had to be followed by the contractor to implement disinfecting for the facility. They couldn't agree on the price and that's what resulted in litigation before the board. So where was the claim brought and what was the result? The claim was appealed after it was denied by the contracting officer again to the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals. What happened? In this case, we have a very good and reasoned opinion. (laughs) Essentially, the board agreed with the contractor that the government had ordered a constructive change to the contract by requiring the contractor to perform this new and more time-consuming and expensive two-step cleaning process to eradicate the C. diff disease. Can lawyers get a copy of this 
case at the same uh, location that you suggested before? I think it was the CBCA website. That's correct. What does the Valerie Lewis case tell us, especially in light of the uh, previous case we were talking about, the Pernix case? This case provides a very good definition of what a constructive change is. And as you know, on government or any, even a private construction project, there will always be changes. And sometimes the parties can't exactly agree that something is within scope or outside of the scope of the original requirements of the contract. Construction is very, you know, fact specific. This isn't a construction case, but the definition for constructive change is very useful and applicable, in my opinion, to construction cases. Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. It's not a construction case, but this idea of constructive constructive change is something that we in the construction uh, law business are well familiar with. So do you think the holdings of um, this case would apply in a construction case? Yes, I I believe that they will. Uh, Essentially, in the board's opinion, there are two essential elements that must be present to prove a constructive change. The first is that there has to be a change. The second is that there needs to be a government order or direction, either by word or its deeds. The change is what's really the important word here. A change is when actual performance has to go beyond the minimum standards or requirements of the terms of the contract. So this change, essentially, if your contract permits you to do something in a certain way and the government sweeps in and says, actually, I disagree, you need to do it in this different way now. And that costs the contractor additional time to perform or uh, more expensive materials to, to get that done in the manner that is different. That's a constructive change and that can be an acceptable claim. Both of those cases provide a lot of food for thought in the COVID-19 era. Let's move to our current pandemic. First is a very general matter, Shiva. What is the kind of advice that you're giving to clients, contractors dealing with the federal government under the current circumstances? Well, I would first start with reading your contract. In every contract, especially... All our clients do that, don't they, Shiva? (laughs) Yes. It it can... uh, It's always the first step. The contract is the roadmap for the contractor in such a situation. And for federal contracts, you might notice that the very last page of your prime contract or your subcontract, there will be a lot of these FAR clauses. Those are the federal acquisition regulations, and they'll be listed by number and have no corresponding text. So it's important to look at those clauses and Google them to pull them up to see what they say. So let's go through those slowly because... I've seen this problem before, and I know that these contracts include these references. So let's talk about a couple of particular FARs, and if you'll speak slowly so that our listeners will uh, get the digits down, that'd be helpful. In most firm fixed price construction contracts, you will likely see the following four clauses that will provide guidance on what to do in this pandemic environment. 
The first one is the suspension of work clause, and that's FAR 52.242-14. The second is the stop work order clause, and that's FAR 52.242-15. These two clauses, they can be applied either by written order from the contracting officer or interpreted constructively. Both clauses require notice to the contracting officer for any claims. Let's talk a little bit about change clauses and excusable delay. Both of those are relevant. Where do we look in the FARs for those? The changes clause is FAR Part 52.243. And this clause also can be applied either through directive change orders or constructively. The excusable delay clause, which mentions pandemic, can be found at FAR 52.249-14. Okay, we have, we have the foundation. We know what FARs might apply. One of the things that construction lawyers are always telling their clients, and I want to get your thought on how it applies here, you got to get your claim or your position in front of the contracting officer early and often. Is that important here? Absolutely. That is the most important aspect of all of this is getting your documentation together. Can't say it enough. Document, document, document. As soon as something like this happens that might lead to increased costs for labor and materials, all of these costs should preferably be coded in your accounting systems as a change separately so that they can be pulled up in a, in a way that makes sense. And coding as in a most granular way is also preferred. So employees sitting idle, one code. Materials purchased, another code. Because the regulations are constantly changing and new guidance is coming out. So the more that a contractor is able to provide good documentation of its basis for a claim, the better. Let's talk a little bit about what contracting officers are learning. Is there a significant amount of guidance coming from the federal government so that contracting officers know how to handle these situations? Absolutely. There is near daily guidance coming out of the agencies and OMB regarding what contracting officers should be doing. The recommendations are generally that they should establish either contract line item numbers that compensate contractors for these impacts and adverse impacts of COVID or entering into written modifications for the contract. Is there a general location to find uh, these guidances uh, for a lawyer uh, representing a government contractor? Absolutely. On the OMB's website, there is good information. The Department of Defense has also issued a tremendous amount of guidance. There's a lot of articles on this, and I've written quite a couple on federal suspensions, these particular FAR clauses that we've discussed today, and the guidance that's being uh, issued from the agencies. Shiva, this has been eye-opening to me, and I suspect to our Listeners, can you leave us with some words of wisdom about how to generally protect the interests of 
government contractors as, as best as a lawyer can? Yes, uh, I would say that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, documentation is very key. Keeping the lines of communication open and pushing as best you can for the government contracting officer, whoever is managing your project from the owner's side, to provide the written direction. You get the written direction or you get a modification in place if there are disputes as to the damages or the costs at a later date, at least that can be revolved, resolved. But the papering of all of this and the documentation and the backup is best. And I would also advise to get your consultants, if there's delay or disruption or inefficiency claims, get your consultant involved early. Get them involved right at that submission of the request for equitable adjustment instead of trying to do the claim on your own and um, having it denied, which then leads to expensive litigation. Get your attorneys involved also at the earliest stage, preparing the request for equitable adjustment. I'd say 99% of the time when scheduling expert and attorneys are involved at the earlier stage and putting together the claim and backing it up, those claims are resolved and resorting to litigation isn't necessary. Shiva Hamandinia, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Buzz. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the expressed written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.